This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. Uh, my name is Flick Ford and I'm the host of Primal Screen and I'm joined by two of my favourite guest reviewers, Will Cox. Hey, Will. Hey, how are you doing? I'm very well. And we've also got Stewie Richards joining us. Hey, Stewie. Hi, Flick. Good to be here. So, you may already know, it's April Amnesty this month. So, a happy April Amnesty to you both. Um, for listeners who don't know, April is a very special month here at Triple R. Uh, it's a month when we ask our listeners to show their support by subscribing or donating to Triple R to help keep shows like Primal Screen on the air. Uh, we are all volunteers here at Primal Screen and uh, it's your sponsorship and your donation donations that allow us to uh, deliver this show every week. Um, so big thank you for that. Um, if you subscribe during April Amnesty, you'll actually be in the running for a whole bunch of cool prizes. So you can head to rrr.org.au for more info. So tonight's show, uh, we will speak with the multi-award winning filmmaker and cinematographer Jane Castle about her documentary, When the Camera Stopped Rolling. Then we'll get lost in the Daniels' wild multiverse martial arts flick, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And then we'll finish up the hour with the wacky workplace sci-fi series Severance, directed by Ben Stiller and Aoife McArdle and starring Adam Scott, Britt Lower, Patricia Arquette and Christopher Walken. So When the Camera Stopped Rolling has been described by film reviewer Margaret Pomeranz as a significant part of Australia's film history. Directed by Jane Castle, the documentary details the challenges that women faced in the film industry and the various shifts in the socio-political landscape of Australia. And she explores this through a very interesting case study, her mother, the pioneering filmmaker Lilius Fraser. And we are joined now uh, by the director of When the Camera Stopped Rolling, Jane Castle. Welcome to Primal Screen, Jane. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So your documentary, it's a curious mix. Um, it's partly a biography of your family and, and in particular your mother, um, Lilius Fraser, but it's also a historical account of the Australian film industry um, from the 50s till basically today or, or, or the late 90s. Um, and, and the many challenges that women in particular faced during uh, getting into the industry, staying in the industry, remaining relevant there. Um, when did you first know that you wanted to tell this story? Well, it was a bit of an iterative process. I actually didn't even want to make this film in the beginning. I wanted to make another film, a film about death, believe it or not, <laughs> like a philosophical, quasi-spiritual, you know, I interviewed monks and nuns and people who are dying and anyway that was another story and my producer Pat Fish said well why don't you just go off and do some writing and so I did and then this story of mum's death fell onto the page and like no brainer um, it was a great story and so the film really took us off into that direction and yeah like she's a trailblazing filmmaker I followed in her footsteps as a cinematographer 
there's a great story there anyway. And then there's this mysterious death, this kind of bizarre tragedy that happened. And it's all kind of rolled into one. So it was really about listening to where the film wanted us to go rather than imposing, you know, I definitely did not want to make a film. Oh, my mother's a famous filmmaker. No, I'd had enough of her, you know, like I want to do something that I'm interested in. But anyway, the film had other ideas and here we are. Yeah, when your um, your documentary, I feel um, it's an interesting it's interesting hearing that because I was I imagined that um, knowing that you're you have that um, rather I suppose it's just interesting knowing that you're sort of sitting on this gold mine of footage and deciding when you're going to share that with everyone because it's a very honest um, portrayal um, of um, you know I, I, I was surprised by how much detail goes into. Um, a lot of the discrimination that um, your mother faced. And, you know, she was one of Australia's first cinematographers. And like so many women in the film industry, yeah, she faced a tremendous amount of discrimination, particularly when she was working on her career. Um, And as a child, you were a witness to what your mum was going through. And despite this, as you said, you decided to get into the film industry yourself. So what did you think that film was going to offer you at that time? Do you mean this film or? No, when you first got involved. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, I, I definitely did not want to get it. Like, you know, it's obvious now I'm having this love-hate relationship with the film and with filmmaking in general. But, yeah, I saw my parents um, getting into a big muddle. You know, they're getting into debt and there was this film. There were, there were literally, you know, offcuts flying all around the place and we'd sit on the cutting room floor and play, play with them. So I was a bit, yeah, I was a little bit ambivalent but... Um, So I applied to do social work at uni, but I also applied to the film school with this little film I'd made for my high school certificate because I couldn't really draw or paint and I wanted to make art, so I just picked up this camera. And Mum actually taught me how to see in black and white during the making of that film. So I just got into film school at the age of 19 and away I went. I just kind of got on this roller coaster and, um, you know, a lot of my, I didn't have great self-worth back then and, and a lot of my self-worth came from the feedback I was getting about my cinematography. So I was just driven to do well and to do better and better and, you know, I wanted to, you know, whatever, be the best. And, and so I really worked really hard. And, um, and my sister also was in film too. So we worked together for a while. I don't know, it just kind of happened. Um, it wasn't, it's was definitely not planned. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that um, anecdote you share about your mum giving you a piece of red sellotape and thinking about how the lightness and the darkness kind of, um, that's really what you need to focus on in black and white filmmaking. I really loved that. It made me think a lot about um, some of my own photography work. I was like, oh, that's a very good point. That really is what it comes comes down to. Um, so your documentary, yeah. When the Camera Stopped Rolling, um, it also has some very difficult moments in it. It's sometimes quite challenging material. You have a very honest portrayal of domestic violence, both physical and psychological. Um, you detail not only what happened in your family, but also your mum's relationship with her her mother. Um, did you have any reservations about about sharing this aspect of your mother's life, and and kind of have you had any pushback from family members? Um, yeah, you know, it's a tricky, it's a really fine line to walk, and there's a lot of you know pitfalls. You know, am I being sensational, and am I kind of um, invading? someone's privacy um you know am I how 
honest am I? You know, how can I be the most honest and objective? So it has been tricky. Um, things with my sister have not been great. You know, we're both you know, we're both living with the legacy of intergenerational mm. trauma. So we, I kind of decided to make the film my own, like and just really own my perspective and, and acknowledge that she's got her own perspective and a different perspective and that that is valid and she can, you know, express that. But when it came to me, yeah, I, I made those choices. And um, mums, I ran the film past mum's siblings and they were all fine with it. Um, but, yeah, look, it's, it is really tricky. It's a taboo area. Um, mm. You know, I talk about my own violence in that family system and um, it's interesting we had, I used to show the film, you know, during the making, you know, various rough cuts to friends and family members and lots of these screenings in living rooms and some people had a real problem with me talking about my own violence and we did a poll once and, you know, who wants it cut out and who wants it in. It was about half, mm. half the room wanted it out. And that's, I think, because it's so triggering, um, mm. even of their own, people's own personal stories. But, you know, for me, that was a sign that, you know, I actually needed to come out. You know, we need to get, we need to talk about this, mm. you know, how trauma affects us and then how we pass it on to the next generation. So I feel like I was probably being more transparent about myself than anyone else mm. in the film, possibly, or maybe my dad, but... Anyway, you know, like you can't defame dead people technically. So, um, yeah, I just, I just made the best. I just tried to be authentic and as honest as I could um, throughout the film. Mm. That was my kind of, you know, standard. And you give a actually a love. There's a really lovely moment in which you do, um, I suppose, repurpose your father's ashes. And I thought that was a really. There's lots of really poetic formal moments within this documentary that I think filmmakers and, and film students will get quite a lot out of. Um, yeah. Jane, I just wanted to pop in and ask a question. In the process of making this film, you must have seen your childhood replayed to you in, in celluloid and in documents and letters and all the other archival material. Did How did going back through your mum's film archive change how you saw her and did it change your perspective? Oh, radically, actually. Yeah, it radically changed my perspective on her. And I was digging through that archive the whole way we were through while we were making the film. It wasn't like, oh, I found all this material and then I decided to make a film. I found out so many things about her. I found out about affairs she'd had. Um, I found out I really started to understand why she was with my father. And I think the the biggest thing is that um, I really developed an understanding of the trauma that she experienced and then therefore how it got passed down to us. And so there was a, there's a lot of forgiveness that grew and, and understanding and compassion actually that I have now that I didn't have before I made the film and also for my father too. And, you, you know, you're just sitting with them and their image and their stories, you know, year after year pondering and it just... They, their, their characters just seep into your skin after a while and you get this kind of perspective. And getting older helps too. You know, it took 10 years to make the film, so that maybe had something to do with it as well. <laughs> um, if, if listeners have just tuned in, we are chatting with Jane Castle about her documentary, When the Cameras Stopped Rolling. The Camera Stopped Rolling. Um, 
Now, Jane, throughout your mother's career, she was often commissioned uh, to do films for mining companies. And, um, you know, however, her her relationship with these companies, although they helped her career at the start, um, it kind of finished when she saw the impact um, that these companies were having on the Aboriginal communities and she refused to portray a different story on screen than what she saw in person. Um, Lilius ended up using some of the footage in filming for um, the land rights um, protests in the late that were happening in like the mid to late seventies, and and she later a lot of her films focused on reconciliation. Um, what do you think that her filmmaking taught you about the responsibility of being a filmmaker um, has when you're telling these stories on screen? Well, you know, she was yes, she was a filmmaker, but she was also she wasn't like, you know, a big noting, I'm a filmmaker type person. She was really like a person and she was multidimensional. She was kind of quite modest. She actually didn't realise what a trailblazer she was. And I think it was more about her whole person. Like she deeply had a deep sense of um, the need for equality and human rights and a really strong passion for First Nations justice from when she was young, actually. And I think it's more that, like, she was making these mining films, but she was also doing activism, like personal activism. And it was a funny mix, but she knew she had to bring, you know, bring the money in, like, and she called them bread and butter documentaries. And she was kind of a bit, a little bit ashamed of them, um, but also not snooty about them. And she actually loved making them. So um, I think when it came to making her films, they were just like an extension of her. Like, yes, she had to bring in the money with these boring industrials, as she called them. And she also wanted to help change the world and help, Mm. you know, people have better lives. And that's what she did. So it was a much more organic, like I don't think she went out consciously to make, you know, I'm making a human rights film and it has to be you know xyz it was just her and so I think I've picked up that the kind of integration of um career professional and personal life and mm. politics actually just on that um I know that alongside your film work you um you did have a very celebrated career um as uh doing music videos for, for artists like Prince, um, Midnight Oil, U2, Paul Kelly and, and lots of others. Um, you were very young when you started doing that work. I'm really curious, how did you get, how did you get involved with that? Oh, well, originally my, my sister just started directing music videos. She just jumped in. I went to film school, you know, learned all the technology and all of that the hard, hard way and she just started directing music videos. So we teamed up for a while but... My big break came when Prince came to town. He was doing some concerts in Sydney and I went to some, went to one of them, but he was also looking for a cinematographer at the same time. And, you know, he was showing a bunch of showreels and he just picked mine and we had to turn up at the Key West apartments, you know, like nine at night and there was a, a pool up there on the top floor with an underwater viewing cab, um, a, a kind of viewing screen. And there were these women dressed in togas and I didn't know what to do. So anyway, we got them swimming and I was filming and and suddenly kind of Prince turned up behind me and said something I couldn't hear, but it gave me a huge fright. And then he left 
And then we kept filming. And then like a couple of days later, I got this call from the US saying, hey, you know, Prince wants you in LA, you know, tomorrow, can you come? <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah. So I just jumped on this plane, um, arrived in LA, this is the biggest set in Hollywood, and then went on to Paisley Park and then went to London touring. So it was just, it was totally mad and flying by the seat of your pants. So I was like, 26 I was so freaked out and completely <laughs> nervous and couldn't barely speak I couldn't could never really hear what he said because he spoke so softly so I never knew what was happening and I was just like pointing the camera and trying to save my life and then I got a, a like a really big agent off the back of that and started to get more and more work in the US and I moved over there so yeah it was a little bit crazy Mm, I love that story. Um, in the doco, you also talk about being a workaholic and, um, you know, this was during your most kind of prolific years as a cinematographer. Um, and ultimately you decided to come back home to Australia and you, you've worked on um, films like Urban Clan, which is about the Page Brothers, Stephen, David and Russell and the, and the formation of Bangara Dance Theatre and 60,000 Barrels, um, about community efforts uh, to treat toxic waste in botany, which is just south of Sydney. Um what what's kind of next? Are you wanting to stay in film now that you're kind of on the the press press circuit for your latest doco? I'm actually training to be a psychotherapist. Really? Yeah. <laughs> because of this experience. I'm going. Yeah, I'm going for the the big three because I was an activist for like uh, you know eight years. So yeah, and I'm going for the third career. And look, I for me it feels like a natural progression because because of that early trauma. I mean, I basically behind the scenes been working on myself you know arduously to become sane over all this time and um yeah it just feels quite natural and I feel like the film has was a lovely it's a kind of example of narrative therapy actually you know when you kind of reframe things and you put things all together and you know it really helped me make sense of what was previously really overwhelming anyway and it's also about me you know like when I started filming even back in high school I loved hiding behind the lens because mm. people really freaked me out and so this is kind of a natural progression coming out from behind the camera getting away from the screen actually being in one-on-one -on -one connection with people and for me that's a real kind of growing edge because you know people have always freaked me out a little bit and so I'm just you know it's it's great for me but it's also great for the people because I do have you know having had that trauma I've got um, quite a good understanding of of how it can be for people and, mm. you know, a lot of empathy. So, yeah, I'm, I've got one more year to go and um, we'll see. I mean, I'll, I'll never say never to making films. I, you know, I, I, as I said, I've got this love-hate relationship. So... Mm. You never know, I might do another film, but we'll see. I'm having a bit of a break after yeah. this. Yeah, well, that actually makes a lot of sense in my mind. I mean, I think films are all about exploring the human condition. So that sounds very exciting, next chapter of your life. If you've just tuned in, uh, we've been speaking with Jane Castle, the director of When the Camera Stopped Rolling, which is screening here in Melbourne at Acme from April 21 to 24, and then at Thornbury Picture House uh, next week. Um, and there's also going to be a Q&A after the screening of your film at the Human Rights Film Festival this Thursday night at ACME. Listeners should head to hraff.org.au for full details and to buy a ticket to that. Jane, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and best of luck with the upcoming festival and screening schedule. Um, when the Camera Stopped Rolling is playing at ACME from April next week and, sorry, this week and Thornbury Picture next week. As I mentioned, 
mentioned at the start of the show, it's currently April Amnesty here at Triple R, which is a time in which we call upon you, our dear listener, to show your support for community radio by subscribing or donating. Uh, It costs as little as $40 a year, so that's about, I don't know, 75 cents a week uh, for a concession or or $85 for a full membership. Um, and if you subscribe this month, there's a whole heap of awesome prizes you could win, like uh, what have we got? A MIF share pass for 12 screenings, or there's a festival pass to the Melbourne Writers Festival, or my personal fave, a year's supply of Mount Zero olive oil. Uh, one of the many perks of being a Triple R subscriber is that you get to put your name on the list for our subscriber screenings. Uh, and look, that's, uh, it isn't my forte. I know that comes as a huge surprise to you, Will. <laughs> but um, look, if you, win, if you love cinema, you really should become a subscriber because the money that you save on these free screenings, uh, which we both attended last week, um, you can put towards, you know, popcorn, uh, a chock top or more movie tickets. You know, the choice is yours. Something unrelated to movies even. Maybe you could do that as but well. But why? Yeah, why would you do that? Um, and like I said, so last week we both attended a subscriber screening for all Triple R subscribers and I may have seen a few of you there. Um, and that was at Cinema Nova and... It was for a film that has been described as one of the weirdest releases of the year. Um, Stewie, I know that you saw this um, just the other day. What can you tell us about the Daniels Everything Everywhere All at Once? Well, Everything Everywhere All at Once is much like The Matrix or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where they are very difficult to describe accurately and succinctly. In fact, (laughs) it's best you know very little about it before entering the movie theatre. But here goes. Michelle Yeoh plays Evelyn Wang, who owns a laundromat with her husband, Waymond, uh, played by Kei Hui Kwan, and their daughter, Joy, played by the wonderful Stephanie Shu. They're being audited by the IRS and have an appointment with IRS agent Deidre Bodidra, played by Jamie Lee. Is that really her name? I didn't know that. Her surname is Bo Deidre. (laughs) It's during this appointment where Evelyn Wong is shown alternative universes where with lives she could have led. To save her family and the world, she must harness the power of all these women she could have become. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is directed by the Daniels, who also directed Swiss Army Man, which some may remember as featuring Daniel Radcliffe as a farting corpse. (laughs) The erection fart comedy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've actually known that. I I actually feel like that's a a little hidden masterpiece. Yes. I really love that film. It was so wacky. (laughs) If you haven't seen Swiss Army Man, check it out. So, yeah, this uh, really ups the ante of wacky. Um, (laughs) Interestingly, though, when we went to see it, the the place, I won't say the name of the theatre, but they switched to the movie theatre without telling the audience. (laughs) So the film started and it was the opening to Memoria. Oh, wow. Very different vibe. (laughs) And I didn't know what to expect from everything, everywhere, all at once. So I was like, oh, this is cool. It's very slow, a lot slower than I expected. That's Hilda Swinton. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I actually missed the opening five or ten minutes. 
um, when like this horde of people kind of got up from Memoria leaving to go to the right theatre. Um, <laughs> Actually, while we're sharing anecdotes, straight after seeing this film, uh, Will and I and some friends of ours went across the road for dinner and I ordered pasta and put way too much chilli oil on my pasta and subsequently just picked up a glass of water and basically guzzled a glass of water with my eye. But I didn't actually explain to anyone what had happened. So for everyone who had just walked out of that film and done the exact same thing of going across the road for dinner, just saw this woman, strange woman, pick up a glass Trying and to drink, drink it through her eye. Drink a glass of water with her eye. <laughs> Which actually sounds a bit like some of the little techniques and uh, behaviours that allow for these characters to switch universes. Um, I won't give too much away because I feel like, like you said, Stewie, it's kind of a, a film you want to know as little as possible about before going yes. into. Yes. Um, something I think, though, that is really exciting about this film is Michelle Yeoh because I love Michelle yep. Yeoh. Um, here is a little uh, clip of her talking about why she got involved in this film. I can't believe someone actually... No, two people actually wrote this. Mm-hmm. And... I must say, I've been waiting for a script like this for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been doing my kind of thing and movies. And, you know, in the past few years, it's been slowly gravitating towards, I play the mother, I play the auntie, I draw the line when they say play the grandmother. And, um, and, he's, and the Daniels have written, they have the courage to write a story about a very ordinary, mm-hmm. aging, Asian immigrant like taking all the boxes and it's hasn't been done in i hasn't been done for right. I'm, in the job long enough to say i have not seen something like this and i think that's a big part of why this film is so exciting mm. as a concept i love michelle yo's character i love um even jamie lee curtis is wonderful in it as this very um passionate um <laughs> tax auditor it's funny hearing the beginning of of michelle yo saying that and you think, you know, this script and you think she's going to say that the script is wild and, and, and crazy and weird. But really, the amazing thing about it, the thing that amazed her is just how ordinary the characters are. They're ordinary people and it's really refreshing to see an ordinary family on the screen. They feel real and they're pushed into these dynamics over decades, the lack of communication, and it's about ordinary lives being touched by the extraordinary. It's actually not that wacky or crazy. <laughs> um, it's Hold got up. lots of... <laughs> Whoa, 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 whoa. That's all window dressing. False advertising. That's all window dressing. It's got lots of crazy, silly bit, but silliness, you know. Yeah. You're right, though. Perhaps one of the most radical elements of everything, everywhere, all at once is the fact that they've got a woman who is older than 20 in the lead role, um, that she's Asian, that she kicks ass, that she is working a job she hates and her husband might divorce her. I feel like there's something really um, fascinating about that. And let's not forget Stephanie Hsu's character because uh, at the core of this, it's a film kind of about intergenerational trauma. Mm. Um, And I thought that the mother-daughter relationship in this and even the mother and father relationship, so uh, Stephanie Shu's mm. grandfather. Sorry, I'm using Stephanie Shu. I've forgotten the character's name um, because I decided to Joy. Call it. Joy, thank you. Joy. What a wonderful name. And the um, granddad is this. Gong Gong. <laughs> Gong Gong, yeah. So Gong-Gong. Joy and Gong Gong's relationship is interesting because yeah. of um, granddaughter and grand grandfather, but also with um, Evelyn's, uh, who's, who's Michelle Yeoh's character, her relationship with her father as well. Yeah. Um, so it's not just focusing on the maternal line, which I thought was a, a bit of a twist. Um, mm. And they, 
there's a, also a, a kind of, not to go too much into it, but I feel like there's a really fascinating queer narrative to this as well. Yes. Yeah, there were, there were a few moments um, uh, which were, I, I questioned because I thought, oh, is this borderline homophobic with how they switch um, uh, to other universes? So they have to do weird things to do that switch. And there's a moment um, with butt plugs and... I initially was like, oh, it's just a little bit on the nose, but it ended up just being so stupid and wonderful that it worked. Exactly. And yeah. that coupled with the Joy storyline, I thought, um, was just so beautiful. Mm. I mean, I think everyone has the same experience when they walk out of this film, and that is just being like flabbergasted with how cinematic the film is. I think that's a great point to make because it's easy to get lost in the crazy of this film, but yep. there are some beautiful cinematic it's, homages. Yeah. Wong Kai Wai's yep. um, In the Mood for Love is something yep. that really gets evoked in, um, the, yeah. in a visual sense in this film. There's some amazingly tender moments mm. for a film that features hot dog fingers. Yeah. I really, I'm surprised. Yeah. Quite a lot of time was spent on the hot dog fingers, <laughs> yeah. which I really appreciated yeah. because they were very, very funny. And raccoon, tui. I can't even pronounce it. Raccoon, yeah. Raccoon, raccoon, a that is ratatouille from the. Um, well, we shouldn't go too much into it, no, but the we raccoon, won't. the raccoon is voiced by Randy Newman in an uncredited. <laughs> yeah. Cameo? Did you know that? I didn't know yeah, that, did but not. that makes uh, that makes perfect sense in this universe. Uh, I think also it's worth noting. Look, we're three white people talking about a film that is very much um, kind of specific to this um, Chinese immigrant experience, and I think there's something really powerful about coupling um, that narrative with comedy, with these really awesome martial arts scenes, which are brilliantly done. I think it was, yeah, especially the office scenes where there's like these really cool and so clever with the props, um, all the performance is so good. But I just think that that story, that immigrant story really comes out. And I think that particularly people who that is their experience, I think they'll get a lot more out of this film because of that emotional Mm. depth there. I think we can all get a lot out of it though, because, you know, like this, this is a, you know, like Asian American experience or Asian experience experience in general in sort of Western films have been massively overlooked for such a long time. And this is what we're missing out on. Mm. Cool stuff like this, different perspectives, we all lose when mm. those are, you know, pushed down. And I loved seeing Kei uh, Haikwan uh, as the father um, appearing in this after basically I think a 30-year break from acting mm. because there were no roles for, for Asian people on screen that weren't, you know, Sidekicks, sidekicks, of, minor yeah. roles. Speaking of sidekicks and minor roles, he's mainly known for Temple of Doom. That's it, and, yeah. and yeah. Goonies, yeah, um, which yeah. he's very funny in. But I don't think I think he found that there was nowhere to go from there. Mm. You know? so and actually, three years, thirty years later, mm. after seeing things like you know Crazy Rich Asians and and and, and big Asian American films coming out, and just thinking, oh, I think this is what I read. This is what I read about his uh, reason for getting back into acting. He thought. Oh, maybe things are changing. Maybe yeah. And they are. And, and it's huge. And, and that's really echoes what Michelle Yeoh was talking about before. And, um, you know, just focusing on Wayman's character, he gets to play almost two characters in one film or maybe even more. And I think they all get to play around with this. And mm. it really shows showcases the amazing acting because mm. – they're not only the physicality of these roles, but also just those emotional shifts that occur. Um, for a film that could very easily just have been a silly little romp, 
they actually give yeah. it quite a whole lot of heart and bit of politics thrown in there as well. I mm. have heard some people already claim it's the best film of the year, which, you know, hey, it's only April, but... Oh, no, it's it's, <laughs> it's definitely on my list. Like, I'm yeah. writing my list as the year go, years goes on and it's currently at number one. I'm still trying so. to decide whether it could possibly knock Drive My Car off the, the top spot for me right now. Does that count yeah. as this year? This yes, is, oh, it I don't does. Know, we we reviewed it, it this year. <laughs> yeah. That's how okay. we base it. <laughs> <laughs> but also, speaking of, like, the best, like, I'm already, like, in campaign mode for Michelle Yeoh to get Best oh, Actress she... Oscar because yeah. she, she does so much in this film. The tonal switches that she does mm. from, like, kick-ass kung fu to like really tender melodramatic moments where, mm. you know, she's basically dealing with this like depression of like everyday life and finding mm. joy in everyday mm. life again with slapstick comedy. And she does those switches so well and she does so much all at once. And mm. it's like, I've always loved her and to finally sort of see her get this role, which sort of meets just how good she is as an actress. Yeah. And, and I think she, is fantastic. She actually, it was an interesting thing that I heard um, brought up and it was in relation to how this film, the comparison was actually made between Tarantino's Jackie Brown and what that did for Pam Greer's career and what, what the Daniels oh, film yeah. does for Michelle Yeoh and they've offered her this really juicy role at a time when for a lot of women in acting this is, you know, less and less roles, like she said, are coming mm. through that are, kind of give her anything. Um, so I just loved that comparison mm. really and kind of thinking about what, yeah, what these, what these films when they come along, they really stay with you. Mm. Um, yeah, an amazing, amazing film. And I forgot to mention before that, that track that I played before we came back in was um, by Sun, Sun Lux, uh, Lux who does the entire soundtrack for this. And it's a film where you may not notice the sound track and then when you listen to it it's on its own it is so laid and there's so much um pleasure in listening back to it so i highly recommend that you check out the score um the track that i played was this is a life which features uh mitski and david byrne um but yeah actually a really amazing soundtrack and i could talk all day about that because i was listening <laughs> to it this afternoon but i won't i won't bore you all um if you um want to check out everything everywhere all at once it is playing at all major and independent cinemas in our final review of tonight uh it's a tv series that's a it's a mishmash between like wacky workplace comedy and kind of this brooding sci-fi thriller um the guardian has warned that it might make your mind explode uh it is the tv series Severance, directed by Ben Stiller and Aoife McArdle. And here is a little clip. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. My name is Mark S. I'm Helly R. My name is Irving B. My name is Dylan G. And I have, of my own free accord, elected to undergo the procedure known as severance. Awesome. I give consent for the Lumen Corporation. And it's a good corporation. To sever my memories between my work life oh, and my personal life. I acknowledge that once the procedure is complete, I will be unable to access my personal memories whilst on Lumen's severed floor. Nor will I retain work memories when I return home at the end of the day. 
am aware that this alteration is comprehensive and irreversible. I make these statements for Okay, that's a wrap. Something I, I just realised about that clip, um, re-listening to it, is the sound of the alarm clock that comes through at the end. Mm. It's, so, it's so clever and I feel like there's so many layers to this amazing series. Um, Will, Severance is one of your recommendations and I know the series finale has already come out so listeners can, can basically binge with uh, Wild Abandon um, on Apple TV if they uh, if after this review it takes their fancy. What, what's the basic premise of the show? I feel like we covered it a little bit in that clip, but yeah, talk that, us through That it. was quite succinct. I, <laughs> I was trying to write down, write the basic premise and it what, took, what took, they took it out of me. Um, okay, so Helly, played by Britt Lauer, wakes up with no memories on the desk of an office boardroom in episode one. She's told that she's been severed. That is her work and personal lives have been split down the middle and she is on the work side. Uh, she and her colleagues, played by Adam Scott, Zach Cherry and John Totoro, work in a windowless office performing unfathomable tasks with no knowledge of their lives after 5pm and no hope of escape. And they're constantly under the watchful gaze of their manager, played by a very creepy Patricia Arquette, <laughs> and her deputy slash enforcer, played by Travel Tillman. Uh, in their inside and outside lives, and they begin to realise that their corporate overlords are up to something sinister. Um, and it's as close as TV has ever got to the call centre job I worked in 2012. <laughs> I am worried that a lot of um, people who watch this and listeners tonight will relate far too much with this. Well, <laughs> well maybe people people going home at the end of the day and, and looking for some escape won't find it here <laughs> because it is, it, it is not a, a show about mm. escape. It's a show about the absolute lack of escape. Yeah. I think. But it's, it's um, the first sci-fi I've seen in a long time. Where, with a central idea that actually has relevance to our lives, you know, not not um, a way out idea that's given some grounding in reality, or an old idea given a modern twist. It's it feels so new and right on our you know current moment. And and on that actually, um, I know that this was a TV series that was made you know during the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic's ongoing, but um, during lockdown where there's lots of restrictions, and so the cast members were actually basically living that lifestyle. So Adam Scott would finish filming and then drive 30 minutes and be like on his own without his family in an apartment, eat wow. his dinner by himself, and then return to work the next day. And I don't know if that's just like taking method acting to the next <laughs> level, but um, I thought that was really interesting because we've all kind of gone through. Um, I don't know, a challenge of sorts of working out a work-life balance during lockdown. Um, I'm so glad you got us onto this. Uh, Stuart, were you across this at all? Or how many? I've only watched a few apps. Have you? How many apps yeah, did you get through? Um, I've only just gotten access to Apple TV. Uh, so it's very new. Um, uh, I managed to watch the first episode uh, and I'm hooked already. I'm very yeah. excited to see where it goes. It reminds me of Lost in a way where you know that there's sort of all of the key players will be sort of playing a role in this chess g game and you know they're going to pop up throughout the series in different ways um, and then all of these little clues along the way have significance um, so I'm excited for that that mystery side of it I... uh, and Will and Will's right the, the idea of severance I think is very um, exciting and you yeah and I actually I've heard a few um 
cinematic comparisons made to, say, the work of Charlie Kaufman. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's got a bit of a Kafka-esque. Well, it's got yeah. a very Kafka-esque. Very Kafka-esque. <laughs> <laughs> um, Modern-day Kafka-esque. Mm. approach um but there's also a lot of comedy in this admittedly a very dark comedy um i found myself i get scared very easily but um and it, even though i mean i'm like i said i'm only a few episodes in there's a there's a sort of sinister vibe to it a, an undertone to it but on the whole a lot of it is quite funny and largely that's owing to the terrific performances of um brit lauer and and adam scott and adam scott most people will know from parks and rec mm. um and he does come from more of a comedy background so i think mm. and ben stiller who has directed most of these episodes but he did work with Eva mikado on this um you know, he's coming from a comedy angle as well i yeah. heard them talking about there's this one scene when um Mark, who, who's played by um, Adam Scott, is walking down the hallway and it just seems to take forever. And so they kept doing takes and takes and takes of it. And then at one point, Ben still is like, actually, can you just like check your watch halfway through it? I think that would <laughs> just to sort of be like, we know this is taking a long time. The, the, um, the use of hallway is such a disorientating space. Mm. The way that people will walk down a corridor, then walk around a corner and around another corner. And, you know, like it's probably the same corridor set that they're just <laughs> shooting from multiple angles, but it's just so um, disorientating yeah. and works so well. But the cast is just amazing, I think. Like Adam Scott, who I always suspected would be great, but he never had much to do in shows like Parks and Rec, you know, yeah. I, I don't think. Um, no, I mean, and also I think that sometimes when you put comedy actors in um, drama, it just makes perfect sense. Like yeah. that line between tragedy and comedy is so fine. I so. feel like if you can nail comedy, you can do... You can do anything. Yeah. Um, but then, and then uh, Patricia Arquette, Arquette uh, John Turturro, oh, and Christopher oh. Walken. I know, apparently. So up. And I, you haven't seen him yet? No, right? I've you seen have. him. He's in. He's in episode two and three. Right, I think. okay, okay. Um, also, I found out today that Totoro and Walken are like friends. They're good mates, apparently. <laughs> I was like, I want to come to that barbecue. But yeah. um, anyway, they and are. Lauer, who I've never seen yeah. before. What is she? But in? she's so good. Yeah, she is excellent. I now want to kind of seek out some of her other work. She is wonderful in that role because she's kind of plays almost us, the spectator, mm, right? Absolutely. Like it's through her eyes that we're like, yeah. this is crazy and no yeah. one else seems to be across and it. And she uh, anchors the whole thing. And and she, they very early on, you know, that thing of a of any kind of fantasy premise with an ordinary person walking in, the viewer is watching just going, I just try this. I just do this. <laughs> I just escape by doing this. Precisely. She tries all of them. Uh, in the first couple of episodes, uh, every method she can think of to escape mm. and it, none of them work. Um, it actually reminds me a bit of, this might be a bit of an obscure one, but The Prisoner, a 1960s psychedelic spy series by Patrick McGowan. Have either of you seen <laughs> The Prisoner? <laughs> Sorry, I just got something not, stuck no. in my eye as Will said that. Oh, you no, look I so haven't. bored when I started. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it was literally like I need to pick up another glass of water You're and like, guzzle oh, it. Oh, here he goes. Uh, Prisoner is amazing yeah. and it's a weird, absurd, psychedelic thing about a spy trapped in a in an idyllic village. Oh, wow. Uh, every episode he tries to escape and there is no escape. Yeah. Uh, so it reminds me a lot of that. But um, I'm actually trying to think of a film that um, had – Oh, I can't think of any of the details, so it's embarrassing to talk about this live on air. But it was basically about a couple that go and go to look at a house and then they get stuck in that house. Yes. And it's got... Vivarium. That's it. Yeah. Didn't love it, but it no. did remind me a bit of the same setup. This is a they better just, version. It is a much yeah. better version. And I have to say, I'm a big fan of opening credits and I know there's a tendency oh. to skip them. Yeah. Um, 
these are remarkable. They're so no, good. Yeah, I, it they're has good. an almost like reference to Sims, which I think is a really great like visual yeah. reference to make. It also reminded me of those you know, little, little people um, photography that's kind of you oh, get yeah. the miniature stuff. Yep. It's got that to it. Um, and it's also just very playful. It almost reminded me a little bit of Anima. Is it the um, Tom York Oh, video. Right. Yeah, it's got a bit of that kind of like suits behaving weirdly vibe. It's a it's a it's a guy um, who I've been following on Instagram for a while. Actually, made that. He, Did he, you? Yeah, he okay. animates. It's very bizarre animations, and he does some filters as well. I think. And yeah, I was watching it with my partner, and we both were like, "I recognize this," you know. And, and yeah, and it's um, it's beautiful. It yeah. just articulates the show so well. Um, and who are the monsters who are skipping this? Mm. This. Perfect <laughs> I know I directed that at Stewie, but I don't know. If, do you skip? Do you skip the intros of shows? I'm no, curious. never. Oh, oh, depends on the show. But I mean, if it's a good intro, I will mm. stop and watch it. Yeah, the that's the thing. I think though that um, ages ago we did a special on Prestige Television, and I feel like um, that's with Dr. Andrew Lynch. If you want to go back and check it out, yeah. it's very good. He's very knowledgeable. But one of the things he talked about was the defining characteristics of Prestige Television prestige television is these you know really sumptuous opening credits and this this um this tv series severance well and truly fits in with it and mm. not to mention the fact that it's got a whole heap of hollywood stars in it as well which patricia really arquette off. is great oh she's, she's wonderful she's yeah. so creepy mm. Mm. she's so good i think yeah. another kind of hallmark of these you know prestige uh t- <laughs> that <laughs> is how you pronounce it yeah, yes that is okay yeah you have to lower your voice yeah <laughs> um is is that that they're not they don't outstay their welcome mm. um and and i hope like um stewie brought up lost earlier that this doesn't absolutely bottom <laughs> out and spin its wheels into absolute chaos but lost um, didn't bottom out <laughs> oh, okay, controversial. Was, Stuart, we've got five minutes left of the show. We can't possibly bring up this debate. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna... The audience bottomed out. Oh, um, well. Um, <laughs> the hottest take on Lost I've ever had. I, I don't really start shows very much until I know that they're going somewhere and that they've some kind of finite, you know. Well, but yeah. I started this one. For some reason, I thought that this was a short series and I'm glad I'm wrong because I've just finished yeah. season one and it's going to be... It's, ongoing. Yeah, it's been commissioned for yeah. season two. Yeah, and I'm it just yeah. yeah. It doesn't let up. Like it's it's just as great all the way through. This is mm. the best TV show I've seen in um uh years. Eight wow. year? I don't know. <laughs> okay, that's high praise indeed. Oh, I'm wow. only a few eps in, but I am hooked. The only reason yep. I I didn't finish it is I've. Uh, Deadlines it's because watching a TV learning. show takes about eight, nine it hours. It takes so long. <laughs> it takes, this is why we very rarely do TV shows. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Severance, which I also highly recommend, is currently streaming on Apple TV. You have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Stewie Richards, Will Cox and myself, Flick Ford. Earlier tonight, uh, we spoke with filmmaker and cinematographer Jane Castle about her documentary, When the Camera Stopped Rolling, about her mother, the trailblazing filmmaker Lilius Fraser. When the Camera Stopped Rolling is screening at Acme from April 21 to 24. There's also going to be a screening and a Q&A on Thursday for the Human Rights Film Festival. And then it'll be screaming, stre- screening at <laughs> Thornbury Picture House the following week. On tonight's show, we reviewed uh, the Daniels' wild multiverse romp, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is currently screening at all major and independent cinemas. Uh, We also reviewed Ben Stiller and 
uh, Aoife McArdle's clever little office sci-fi series, Severance, which you can stream on Apple TV. Uh, as always, you can listen back to our show at rrr.org.au or um, just follow or subscribe to our podcast. Uh, a big thank you to Jane Castle um, for joining us and to my guest reviewers, Stewie Richards and Will Cox. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.